Hi, filmmakers. This is Jason Brubaker with FilmmakingStuff.com. I'm on the call today with a filmmaker based back east, a gentleman who understands independent micro-budget movie making, um, both the pros and the cons. And I think what we're going to give you today is some, some information that um, is going to be beneficial to, to your own movie making. Hello, Nathan Rand. Are you with me? Yes, I am. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Well, um, I understand you've made a couple movies, and if you could just give our readers a little bit of your background, that would be great. Sure. Um, as, as my background as it applies to filmmaking, um, in 2006, I uh, set out with uh, my wife as our producing partner to uh, do our own film. I had uh, sh- shopped a couple scripts around before that and had people attached, but wasn't getting any... Uh, any big bites, you know, basically it was... That and when you, when you say you were shopping scripts around, were you doing that in Hollywood, or how, how did that work for you? No, absolutely not. I, um, I, I had written some scripts, uh, found people, actors uh, that were interested, and uh, then they presented to their agents, and their agents kind of shut it down because, you know, the, the fear, of course, would be that we're running around in our backyard with a video camera. We really had nothing to show for it, so... So, for what yeah, we, and... For what and we were going to do. You know, for some of the folks listening to this, they may have never made a movie, so they may still be living with kind of the same mindset that they have to get an actor to attract the money or they have to get the money to attract an actor. Was that sort of your model at that time? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. And then and then if you didn't have the money, that's what I that's what it sounds like. You didn't have the money, so you'd approach the agents and they'd say, "Listen, we can't really help you here." Right. I approached uh, the actors, and uh, then they bring it back. They were interested. They bring it back to their agent. Their agent says, well, you have other things to work on right now. So it kind of just, uh, you know, when that happens, when, when you get start to get rejected, and you say, okay, well, let's, let's look at what the problem is here. And the problem virtually was that, you know, if Quentin Tarantino goes up to somebody and says, I want you to be in my movie, there's nothing better that they're going to be working on that they're not going to do his movie. If I go up to somebody and say, I want you to be in my movie, they're going to look at a million other options of other things that they should be doing, like grocery shopping or whatever, and not do it. So we had, we ha- I had no real, I had nothing to show for myself other than I had directed a play off-Broadway. Um, but for the most part, really, it was just, you know, the passion and the script and the dream and the vision to do it and nothing else to show for, for what we were going to do. You know, no professional working actor wants to waste their time for 30 days working on something that's going to be a piece of crap. So, how, how did you push through? What do you mean? How did you keep going when, you know, you faced all that rejection, you had a lot of, you know, you just, you wanted to make a movie? Well, that was a script that we were looking at, probably like a million dollars or something. You know, if it was made in Hollywood, it would be $10 million. If we did it, it would be 500000 to a million dollars. So we set that aside because clearly we didn't have that money in our bank account. And I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a movie that we can do with the resources that we have. So I wrote a movie called Hunting Season, which was uh, a fairly traditional uh, slasher in the woods, kids go camping horror movie, with the exception that I was, I was annoyed at the, at the quality of horror movies that are, were coming out. This was, you know, right in the middle. It, this was in 2005. So DVD, straight to DVD, was this huge market where people should have been pushing the envelope and making stuff that was at least on par with the things that came out in the 70s and the 80s, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and some of that those stuff. The things that when I was a kid and we would pass around our bootleg 
recorded VHS tapes of a tape of a tape of a tape, and you're watching the head guy's head from scanners yeah. blow up, and it's the most amazing thing ever. It wasn't happening. I'd go to our our video store back when we had video stores, and and spend you know twenty or thirty dollars a week renting movies, and they were all shitty. So I said, let's write something. I'm going to focus on character development because that's the biggest thing that's, that was missing in straight to video horror films at the time. Is it was character development. You know, every movie starts off with some big gory, bloody scene, probably some nudity, and then it moves into the into the, the movie. So they've already blown everything that they, all the anticipation that they have going for it because you've already seen everything that you want to see in it. The blood <laughs> and the guts and all that. So I focused on, on character development, story development, despite the fact that it was a fairly straightforward kids go camping, something bad happens, and they get set upon by some hunters. Um, so I wrote the script that I knew that we had the resources to do, and I said, Okay, we probably we could probably spend five thousand dollars this year on renting horrible movies. So why don't we take five thousand dollars in credit cards and and make this movie ourselves? At least then we'll have one good movie that we can watch this year. And uh, so we you know gathered some friends together and some friends of friends and put the cast together and found a bunch of property out in the middle of the woods in Connecticut. And went back there for about a month and a half and shot on nights and weekends, um, doing everything ourselves, you know. Uh, I ran the camera. We had uh, three or four, actually that, that's stretching it, we had two or three production assistants. I'd go out, set up the tents. Yeah, there was, the storm would come through and knock all the tents down, so I'd have to go out the next day and set them up again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, you know, the first movie we're shooting in, it's outdoors, so it's the rainiest summer of the year. Right, and you can't, you can't control the, any of that environment. Right, it's the rainiest summer of the decade, so we're out there every every day. I work until 3.30. Every day it's downpouring. <laughs> so 3.30 I'm getting calls from the cast. Oh, are we shooting today? Are we shooting today? And I say, nope, let's cancel the shoot. By 5 o'clock, which would have been our call time, the sun is out, everything's dry, and we should have shot. So I learned a lot of lessons on hunting season, that's for sure. And... Um, it's it's a decent enough movie, I guess. Uh, some people uh, seem to like it. It's 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 flawed. It's a five, you know it's a five thousand dollar amateur movie. Um, but I made it, and it's uh, it it was what I wanted it to be and what I could make at the time. If I could do it, I would go back and remake it for a hundred grand. And how 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 was that shooting on weekends? Did you find that you had a lot of momentum with the cast and crew, or did you each time have to start over and kind of? ramp it up and get everybody in the movie making mindset all over again um it was it was pretty much ramping up I, we would shoot probably two days a week also so you know I would, I would work my day job from 7 to three thirty. get home pack up the car with all of the equipment and gear and everything and drive out to our location and meet our actors out there at five or six and we would have maybe two or two and a half hours of daylight, so we could shoot some daylight stuff, but then we'd shoot all the nighttime stuff until like 11 o'clock at night. So then I'd get home by midnight after cleaning up and go to bed and wake up at 5 o'clock to go to work at 7 the next day. And do, we'd do that two or three days a week, and then we had some weekends where it was going to be a 10-hour day or a 12-hour day where we got out there at 8 o'clock in the morning and we were going to shoot until 9 o'clock at night. Now... One of the things that we ran into was the first day that we went out there for a weekend, 
it was a Saturday, and so we go out, and it's 8 o'clock, and start setting everything up for our, this is going to be our full day of shooting. And right at 9 o'clock, as I'm about ready to say action, we start hearing gunfire all around <laughs> us. Now, it turns out that uh, we, were, we were on the border of the Ansonia Gun and Ro- uh, Rod and Gun Club. Right. Which I didn't know because every day that we were overshooting was after 5 o'clock after they closed. So all of a sudden, this first day of a weekend that we go out there, and it sounds like we're in the middle of Iraq with <laughs> bullets whizzing by. And so you know, this was going to be our big day, shoot everything. So, you know, you quickly have to decide what to do. And I said, well, it started listening to it, and you could tell that it was probably shotguns shooting at skeet. So there was always kind of this, there was a boom, boom, and then there was always a, a delay until the next shooter got up to shoot. And they were maybe a half a mile away or so. Um, so what I said was, well, we'll just, I'll just shoot every scene, like every, every angle, like 15 times. And I'll just have to, in editing, cut together all of the different audio and cut out every one of those booms because <laughs> these kids are supposed to be out in the middle of nowhere. So it actually worked out. Uh, the audio is one of the weak points of, of hunting season, which, you know, actually influenced some of my decisions on burning inside, but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily weak because of the gunfire. It was just, you know, bad microphones and uh, amateur production. But, um, you know, so we get over – so every day there was always these challenges. It's either wet and raining or there's gunfire going off. At one point there was a bear in the woods, so that shut down production for about an hour or two. <laughs> um but uh, as far as getting everybody into, in, in, into the mood, um, I, everybody, for the most part, when they arrived on set, wanted to be there. So uh, it was a little bit of ramp up. And, and one of the things, one of, one of my processes, I guess, on hunting season was that I would sh- we didn't have rehearsals. We didn't have time for rehearsals. We didn't rehearse the scenes. So we'd shoot them. And then three or four days later, we'd go back and I'd say, you know, I have another idea for that scene that we shot on Monday. Why don't we reshoot that again? And so we'd reshoot it again. So it was like the first shot was a dress rehearsal. And so ultimately what I ended up doing was reshooting almost every scene if I wasn't satisfied with it when I would look at it in editing. So that kind of helped as well. So we'd reshoot the scene that we already knew and had done before. And so then that gets you used to getting into doing the next scene, which then comes out better. And the more you work, the better you get during the day. And so after post production, what what did you do? Did you go out in the festival circuit with that movie, or, or how did you how did you uh, go about promoting it? Um, after post production, I I submitted to festivals. Uh, the only acceptance that we received was the New Filmmakers screening series in New York at the Archive Film Center uh, or the uh, Anthology Film Archives. Um, which was scheduled for Halloween in New York City, which is probably the worst day of the year to have a film screening because everybody else is out at Halloween parties and <laughs> um, at the parade and everything. So there was maybe five people in the, the audience with the inclusion of me and two other people that I knew. <laughs> so there was probably three people that saw it that day that were not affiliated with the with the movie, but the they, the three that saw it all said it was a good movie when they walked out, so that was fine. But for the most part, when I finished production, we purchased a booth at the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors in uh, New Jersey. It was the New York, New Jersey Fangoria Weekend of Horrors convention. Mm-hmm. 
um, I had never gone to a convention before. I'd never even attended one. I had always heard about them when I was younger, but then, you know, life takes off and you, it kind of fell to the wayside. But right. so I said, okay, we're going to buy a, we're going to buy a table and we're going to have our DVDs. And, um, I started screen printing t-shirts for hunting season. And, you know, we'd buy these, these two or $3 cheap uh, t-shirts, a dollar shirt. I'd screen print it and everybody that buys a DVD gets a t-shirt. So, we bought all of our stuff, set it all up, and uh, it was actually it, it was a really good turnout that year. Um, we had a great time. Sold, I think, between three and five hundred DVDs that weekend. It was it was really successful. That uh, is met successful. Met a lot of other met a lot of other filmmakers, um, and actually that uh, one of the people that ended up with one of our DVDs, and I can't remember if he bought it or not, is Elmar Berger. And he's a German, uh, film producer. And he flew home to Germany that, that Sunday night. And on Tuesday sent me an email saying he had seen hunting season. He loved it. Whatever our next movie is, he was going to produce it, executive produce it. So I created hunting season with the sole intention of making something that people would be able to see what we could do with zero dollars in the in the hopes that somebody would want to work with us to be able to improve our our productions. And well, er, earlier in this conversation, you you called it an amateur movie, and I'd have to slightly disagree. And and I, I know you're familiar with my work and kind of my philosophy, but whenever you go out and you're a, you're an entrepreneur and you start up a business, I don't think you consider yourself an amateur business person. I, I think you effectively in this. You know, in the demonstration of, of creating your first feature film, you have, in fact, created a product. You went out and marketed the product. You sold the product successfully, be it to a small crowd, but somebody within that crowd had some influence. So when you got that call and said, hey, I want to produce your next movie, what, what was your next step? Did you stop promoting hunting season and move on towards the next project, or did you continue promotion? No. So this was in – this would be in 2007, um, when that happened, so I made the I made hunting season in in 2006, shot it and uh, did post production in 2006, and in 2007 is when we first and and after hunting season after after shooting it while I was editing it, I had already begun to think about what my next production would be, and I wanted to do a revenge thriller slash home invasion type movie, <laughs> and it's interesting because this was before The Strangers and before some of these other home invasion movies came out, so I was, I was on the right path as far as what was going to be popular in about six months. Um, so I started writing this movie called, and I came up with this idea and called it Burning Inside, and it was going to be, you know, revenge in, the t- in like a Mad Max thing, you know, the, the family gets killed or something bad happens to a guy, and he has to track down all these people that did something bad to him, and and, and act revenge on it. And there's also going to be this home invasion sequence in there. Gotcha. And um, and I had a lot of tr- I had a lot of trouble with this. And and actually at the Fangoria convention uh, that we were at, I already have, had printed out flyers. I had already taken a photo with an idea of what I wanted, you know, the the a kind of teaser poster to look like. And I had made flyers already saying, you know, Burning Inside coming soon from Dalton Gang Productions. It, it, so people buy burn, uh, hunting season and they'd get a Burning Inside flyer as well. So it sounds like you were on the path to maybe sourcing your future audience. Did you did you collect mailing addresses or do any of that kind of stuff? I think we did have a sign up sheet, but I don't think it was anything. It didn't. We didn't end up with any major. Um, it, we didn't end up with hundreds of names. I can tell you that. I don't gotcha. think there's anything worthwhile. Maybe maybe 20 names or something. But, um, yeah, so we were already looking to, to build our audience. Um, 
so I, I, I was working on this script called Burning Inside, and, and it was never turning out to be exactly what I wanted to be. I had a lot of trouble envisioning it because I had just written Hunting Season, which was a movie that I wrote specifically with the resources that we already had in mind. Yep. With Burning Inside, I wanted to write something outside of just write the story to, to make the story, not to fit it to, to us. But I was having a lot of trouble adapting to that and saying, okay, so now I've written this story with this, you know, house and, and all these people are going to break in and all this stuff's going to happen and all this other stuff happens and this happens, but I couldn't envision myself making it because I didn't have a house to do it <laughs> So I, I really struggled with it and uh, Elmar Berger was on board the whole time and said well, you know, whatever it is, I'll, I'm executive producing it and so I kept working and working and working on this throughout 2007 and then in the uh, late fall of 2007, I, I set the script aside. I'd probably gone through 30 rewrites of it already. It didn't change wow. from everything from being a very straightforward revenge type of film to all of a sudden it involved an Iraqi war vet and an, an Iraqi war sequence and all this other <laughs> stuff. All this, it just started going all over the place. And so I set it aside, and I had something that was pretty close to what I wanted to do. And but I still couldn't visualize it. So I sat down and I, I decided to take up painting. And so I painted um, film scenes from old movies like Nosferatu and uh, Night of the Living Dead, these old mm -hmm. black and white movies. So my mm -hmm. paintings were all just black and white, stark. And what I did while I, while I was painting that, it just kind of, painting is, is not chronological. And so it, it was just kind of this image, and you're just painting, and it cleared my mind, and I started to all of a sudden really see the black and white vision and this not this this non chronological vision of doing it. And after I did two or three paintings, I said, I've, I've got it. And I sat down to my script, and I cut two or three scenes out, and I rearranged a couple of scenes, and then that was it. And it was burning inside, and it's a 55-page script. And I said, okay, this is it. I, I now have my vision. I know that because I know what my, I knew what my limitations were after hunting season. I knew that audio was going to be a problem unless I wanted to pay to get an audio production audio guy. And even then, um, post production tweaking voices and things of that nature. When you watch these lower budget movies, they don't sound like a big budget Hollywood movie. You know, right. not, your actors never sound like Hugh Jackman. So. Uh, so I knew that I had to cut out a lot of uh, all the dialogue. So I, I wanted to, to do something that was virtually a silent film with very little dialogue, very little to worry about on set with audio and having to deal with that issue. Also, at this time, I, I still was shooting on my Canon XL. I was still planning on shooting on the Canon XL1S, which is what I shot hunting season with. But I'm not a, I'm not a cinematographer. I'm not a, I'm not a, a trained DP. So I wanted to also limit the amount that I could screw up the way that it looks and make sure that it looks uh, really good. But I also wanted to make sure that that look fit the production overall. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to do black gotcha. and white. And that was influenced by the painting. Then I, and also I'm painting Nosferatu pictures. So I start studying German expressionism and thinking of, and, and seeing all that stuff that they did back in the early 1900s and how really neat it was and how it started to fit the story of a guy who has amnesia but goes to get revenge. And since revenge is a memory-based response, you can't get revenge on something that you don't remember. It really all started to work and, and kind of make sense to create this whole world for Burning Inside where most of it's black and white, and then there's this part that's in color that kind of symbolizes something that might be outside of that world.
Sure. And did you give any thought whatsoever to uh, your marketing and your distribution with that movie? Because it sounds to me, uh, from what you're going for, as a very niche following. Absolutely. Actually, uh, the, the reviews for Hunting Season were very mixed. And the, the first thing, having it be my first film and really the first thing that I'd ever done that got reviews, my first response was always, oh, my God, I have to do what these reviewers are saying in order to make a killer movie next Right. Time. And that's that's you read the you read the script and or the review and you go, oh, I, I have to fix this. I, I can fix this next time. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll, you I'll, want I'll to believe it. that th- those things don't bother you, but at the same time, you can almost become obsessed with them if you don't watch it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you say oh, I have to I have to put more gore in it, and I, somehow I have to have you know all the character development that I love, and I and I have and I'm not going to compromise myself in that way. It starts to have character development, but somehow I have to make it more exciting in the beginning and more punch up the gore here and do this better there. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks of doing that and, and driving myself crazy thinking that that's what I had to do in order to make the next movie to get recognized better, sure. I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go the opposite direction, and I'm going to make a movie that only I will like. <laughs> and, and I said, I said the, you look through history, and, the, and the, the, the people who have, I suppose, had the greatest... Um, success, whether it was in just creating something that is highly regarded or whether it's something that is highly successful, is that those are people that that they just did what they specifically wanted to do without considering what a reviewer is going to say or, or something along those lines. So, well, it's interesting that you say that because I know audience influences a lot of what we do. You have to think about the audience. At the same time, you're also you have a background in, in you've run your own business, so you also I would think have a context for hey who's my customer who's actually going to buy what I'm making. Did you give a lot of thought to that aspect of it when you were making the movie? Absolutely, I I always think about the audience, and and that's kind of what drives it. I mean that that goes along with writing a story also. When you write part of the story, you you write that and you say, okay, well the audience is already thinking this because this happened. Now when they get to this part, they're going to think that. So that, I mean, whether that is how it comes across in the end, whether that's how it plays out to the audience at the end, is, is up to the audience to determine. But that's what I, when I write, that's how I think. And, and, of course, I'm the first audience, so I see if it works for me that way. But, yeah, I mean, even just deciding what, what genre to go through, what, what to do, I, I, it, it's, again, I look back at the movies that are being released, and there's nothing out there that was released that's similar to, say, an Eraserhead or a Begotten type of movie. Sure. And I know that there are people out there that that are craving that type of film. I know that I do. You know, like, Pie comes out, and it's amazing. I love it. And then nothing. You know, you know there's nothing yeah. else out there like that. There's nothing that's... Everybody, you know, and I, I say everybody, and I don't mean everybody. I mean, there are definitely some unique and interesting filmmakers out there. But a lot of what you see that goes straight to video, it's all this, it's, it's like a bunch of filmmakers running with the herd. And they all run along, and they all do exactly what I was thinking after those reviews. Oh, more gore, and let's do this, and this will, we'll do horror comedy, because that's easy to get a laugh out of the audience and then to make them cringe, you know? So... And I kind of wanted to do. I, I, I want to do the opposite. I want to do. I want to do meaningful work that is is unique. Well, I, I think you know, as somebody who's produced some of the movies that you would consider to be part of the herd, um, I hear you, and I understand you know the perspective. At least my thought process when I go into production is, I think, 
you know, who is my target audience? Uh, how many copies of this movie do I have to sell to recoup the initial investment? And I would consider you with, with the movie that you're describing, you know, I, I'd have to put you in the category of what I would consider to be, you know, for Burning Inside, you are what I now consider to be a brave filmmaker, you know, where you're not afraid to go after this thing that, that you want to create regardless of maybe what the outcome is going to be financially. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I look at it, and, and, and in reality, the, with a, a $5,000 movie for hunting season, if I sell 1,000 DVDs at, at $20, I just made $20,000 on a $5,000 movie. Right, and, and I mean, and that's the good business. With, the same thing with hunting season. I went into that with a, okay, I, if I make this movie, that this is a small niche, there's, there's what, 350 million people in the United States? Yep. At least a thousand of those people have to be looking for a deliberately paced, non-chronological, mind-trippy black and white movie. If I could sell a thousand of these at twenty thousand dollars or at twenty dollars, that's twenty thousand dollars. Our budget was ten thousand dollars on this. Then we've got our budget back. We split it between us, and everybody goes home happy. How hard could it be to find it? And, and that's. If I made something more mainstream or more broad, I think it's I think it's almost it's harder to find an audience because you can't define the audience that you're looking for. I mean, I'm looking for a very specific, small group of people. And and you're you're pricing it accordingly. Right. And, and uh, so and so I mean, back in the '80s or the '90s, you take a little, you know. Uh, tiny little ad out in the back of Fangoria magazine that's like a classified ad and say, just like Eraserhead and blah, right. blah, blah, and a couple of quotes, and you would sell you would sell a thousand VHS tapes. Well, have you tried that for Burning Inside? To take out, I don't know if, well, to get into, we, we, we can move into the distribution question now if you want. <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're ready to go there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit too about hunting season. What ultimately happened with your distribution there, and then burning inside, if you if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Uh, so with hunting season, we sold a bunch of DVDs on our own, and uh, then as we moved into burning inside, it just kind of, it was always it was always the means to to make burning inside. It was always hunting season was always out there, and never intended to be you know this. Hey, if, if 15 years down the road I'm doing interviews on the 15 year anniversary of the cult classic hunting season, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> that was never the that was never really the the intention was not to become a millionaire on hunting season. Um, so it kind of just we put it out there and that was it. The the trailer was up on our YouTube page and 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 we have a Facebook page and I actually put uh, copies up on uh, Film Baby. Okay. Uh, Twenty copies at a time and those sell every you know month or so. I would get a five dollar whatever check from film baby because we'd sell one are you on amazon or itunes with that no didn't do amazon uh didn't do itunes uh just put it up on film maybe and that was it actually i don't even know if itunes was in 2007 if itunes was even well that's the other uh, you know we made our first feature and released it around that time so you were right on the brink of of what i would consider to be the demise of what what used to be dvd distribution moving into more of a video on demand paradigm right and and actually, somebody came across our um, trailer on YouTube. I don't even know how he found it, but he uh, sells films to Gravitas VOD, which is a huge um, aggregator, I guess, for yep. uh, video on demand. 
and asked if I'd send him a copy of it. I sent it. He was interested in it, and we he went to Gravitas with it. They picked it up, and it got put on video on demand um, through basically every cable company except for Comcast and Time Warner, I think. And this is hunting season? This was hunting season, yeah. Okay. So it was available in 13 million homes wow. for three months on your video, your VOD cable box. Sure. And um, so I went out and, and – uh, bought advertising through Project Wonderful, which isn't the, the most targeted advertising for a horror filmmaker. It's really, at this point, it's still in its infancy, so it's kind of a lot of uh, webcomic. But, hey, people that, that read and write webcomics, they watch horror movies also, so, you know, that, that, that could work. So I did, you know, maybe $50 in advertising through Project Wonderful and had sure. hundreds of thousands of impressions and all that. And I did a lot of Facebooking and Twittering. This was just the very beginning of Twitter. I think this was in 08. I can't remember. Uh, may, may have even been 09. Oh, it was 09 when, when – so we were already done with Burning Inside when Hunting Season went to VOD. Gotcha. And, and how were your results to the VOD? Did you make any money? <laughs> um, well – I got a check. I received a check from our uh, our distributor for $84. Nice. And it cost me $80 to buy a hard drive and send it out to them <laughs> in order for them so to So that was a $4 profit. <laughs> yeah. You're doing yeah. pretty well. Yeah, so it was like a $4 profit. Um, and you you know, after... we, we joke around, and I, it's it's been my intention to always be very frank with the readers, especially filmmaking stuff those of us that actually want to make a modern movie-making business. And this is important stuff, so I, I just want to, you know, I, I honor you for, uh, for acknowledging some of these realities. Yeah, no, it, and, 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 you know, that was, that was one of the first reality checks, because I thought, I was like, holy crap, we're going to be in 13 million homes if, like, half of 1% of those people accidentally order hunting season – I'm going to get like $100,000. Yeah, and I'm all, I, I have the same problem. It's like the calculator disease, right? You pick up a calculator and you crunch numbers all day, and it's almost, it almost jinx you from, from the minute you, you touch a, a key on the calculator because it, it oftentimes never works out the way you expect. Right, and I think that we had seven or 8,000 views or something, but by the time that the money gets split between – Gravitas and the cable companies, and then Gravitas and our the guy who represented us, and then us. It all, it, you know, I'm not saying that we got ripped off or anything by any means, or that the filmmakers got screwed or whatever. Because that's not the case at all. I mean, this is, we, we if if we had sold a hundred thousand views, we would have been, we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation. Sure, <laughs> but um, but it, so so it did what it did. It was just the cost of getting it put on Digibeta and yeah sending it out and the cost of the and everything and it and it, it is what it is now Gravitas have those still, rights reverted back to you are they now available again can you no, redistribute they still, they still have the rights i'm pretty sure yeah they still have the rights for at least another year or so but um okay and, and they and at the beginning of the year they were working on a or was this last year i can't they, the years just blur now uh they sure. were working on a deal with comcast but then the whole comcast nbc thing put that on the back burner so you know who knows if they get on comcast vod maybe we'll get back up on there is that only for cable vod or are you free to get on to itunes and amazon the reason i ask is i can help you get on to obviously anybody can get on amazon i can help you get on itunes as well but if you've already locked up your vod rights that's going to be tough 
my deal with them is for all streaming. So okay. VOD, anything other than physical media, for the and, most part, or, and, or theatrical. Um, and I and I think that's understandable based on the times that that you know all of this was happening, where it's sort of what I think is the older distribution paradigm, where you get a middleman in there that says, "Give me your VOD rights, you know, I'll make this, I'll make you rich, or whatever." Right now, the guy who. Uh, arranged the whole deal. I, I'll have to look for his name later if I can find it. Sure. But uh, he he arranged the whole deal. Uh, he he deals with Gravitas a lot, and he actually did go to to iTunes and um, maybe a couple of other aggregators. But they but it was it was rejected. You know, there's no stars in it. There's it's it's not it's not that easy to get a um, an independent film like this on iTunes. Uh, I, I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get overly salesy here, but I, I have an affiliate relationship with a company called Distribber, um, and you can reach them through MovieSalesTool.com. Okay. Yep. And no, I, I've, are I've you familiar with them? To, I've gone to Distribber's site, uh, looked at them, and I think that our Burning Side distributors had actually just talked with them about it. For yeah. And, and, and this is more of an offline conversation, but yep. for any of our listeners out there. Just know that there are ways to approach video-on-demand distribution without a middleman interaction. And um, for you, you know, what I'll do after this call is I'm going to send you uh, the Independent Producer's Guide to Digital Distribution. Okay. That's my little freebie for, uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Um, but going back to, so what are we doing with Burning Inside now? What's, how's that going? Okay, well, just to finish up hunting season. Oh, sure. Gravitas put hunting season up on YouTube, so you can see it in its entirety for free. I think that there's like four commercial breaks in the middle oh, cool. of it. Um, and it's got 12,000 views. Uh, for the most part, there's like eight comments, and they're mixed. You know, People criticize the quality of it because the audio is a little low, and then the commercial breaks in, and it's really loud. But, but 12,000 views is kind of cool without it being having a total negative hate it rating. How does that work for you? Do you get any any uh, financial incentive to do to have your movie up in, in its entirety on YouTube? Since they have advertising in it, they probably re they do get some um, money for it. Uh, Gravitas will, but uh, to cover the cost of them probably digitizing and all whatever the recoupable expenses are, sure. I'm never going to see anything from that unless and with with advertising on YouTube uh, from what i understand from what i've heard is basically if you get a million views you can get 1 to 10,000 dollars in advertising depending on how active your viewers are on your advertising gotcha. I'm well well far away from a million views so i don't ever <laughs> expect to i'm just happy people are watching it i think and, it's validating right yeah and 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 i actually ended up putting hunting season on indieflix at the same time i have a on my blog uh, which is nran.wordpress.com Okay. I have a four or five part blog about IndieFlix and Create Space for Amazon, and I was comparing the two because they both seem to offer similar services. After my first blog went up, uh, Scylla Andrine commented on the blog and mentioned that uh, they can go, you go through IndieFlix and they'll put it on to Create Space for you. So I have a whole blog breaking out how that experience was and which seems to be the better service, whether you go through Create Space or IndieFlix. So I do have it up on IndieFlix, and um, uh, I just got a $6 check from them last week. So they must have sold two copies over the past uh, month. And, and I, I would imagine that those copies could be sold because people see it on hunting, on um, YouTube, start to watch it, enjoy it, and then go and, and get the DVD or uh, do a, a download through uh, Amazon. Well, Actually, no, through IndieFlix we don't have our downloads because Gravitas owns those. 
in our email interaction, you'd, you'd made a joke about maybe uh, getting some of these things out on BitTorrent and finding out what would happen if the thing was pirated. And that, I wanted that to bring wasn't that really a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I can tell you, our first feature was pirated, and we went after. You know, I was on the. I was sort of like, it was out. I I was out all night on Saturday. I get up early the next morning. I'm kind of hungover on a Sunday, and I just do a search, which I often do for my titles, and all of a sudden I could instantly watch my movie, and I thought, man, this is totally pirated, and it's not even difficult to find. Right. So myself and some of the other folks from the production team, we went after all these sites and said, listen, this is pirated content, get it off. Um, you know, send them the, the, the standard cease and desist uh, emails. And what happened was, for a time, the movie was pretty hard to find. But the other thing that happened amazingly to me was our sales dropped significantly. Now, it's very difficult to track whether or not there's a correlation between the two, but I can tell you this, as our pirating increased again, our sales went up again. Okay, so, so your sales so your sales increased every time that it was pirated. Yes, and I don't, you know, I know there's a lot of people that would probably have a different perspective on the whole thing. Right. Um, and I and I'm not speaking the gospel here. I don't know if there is a correlation, but my hunch is that I can't prove is that there is a correlation between uh, pirating because it's almost like a low quality advertisement for your movie. And sales, so it's sort of the same experience I think you're you're mentioning with the YouTube, which I guess is a lot more legitimate and probably better quality and a little bit more accessible than trying to go through all the BitTorrent sites. It is, but with YouTube and and we will talk about this more probably after uh, we discuss burning site. But with YouTube, it's a huge site. It's very broad, and this goes to the whole making a a very specific niche movie versus a very a, a broad movie. Yes, is that in YouTube. The, the findability for your movie is very slim. No, I mean, unless, I, I don't know how anybody would come across hunting season in YouTube. But it, it, you know, maybe they go to the Gravitas and they see the Gravitas has 70 movies up there that you can watch all their movies and you just click through them and go through all of them. You know, that helps. The fact that they have a, their own, basically their own storefront there. But if I put, if I put hunting season up full length feature on my YouTube page, I'm probably going to – I'm not going to get that many views. Gotcha. I'm, I'm not going to get 12,000 views. People aren't just stumbling across my, my page finding my movie. Whereas if you put something up for BitTorrent, you have hundreds of thousands of people that are there just to download everything that they can. They yep. see a movie and they download it. They see a movie and they download it. So you have an audience that's just continually consuming stuff. And it's, and it's a fairly – I mean, it's not limited – but by any means, but the number of feature-length films that you can download on BitTorrent limits what you're going to be getting. Gotcha. So, so it's almost like bringing a, a huge case of DVDs into a into a convention center where there's a whole bunch of people looking for free movies and throwing them out there, as opposed to going to a trade show. And everybody that's walking through there is, is picking and choosing what movie and where they're going to get one, you know? Sure, yep. Um, so, so with Burning Inside, uh, we made Burning Inside, sent it out to a bunch of festivals, and at which point I decided that I'm never, ever paying for a festival screening as, as submission again. <laughs> uh, because it just... It, 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 so submitting to festivals seems to me to be the same way thing as submitting to a distributor. You're looking for one person that might like your movie. 
and the, the percentages of that, on, especially on something like that. Well, actually, with this, I thought that people would be, I thought it would be a good festival movie because it, it's very, it pushes the envelope. It makes people think. It's very, it's very festival-friendly. But it's also a two-hour movie, which makes it tough to screen for festivals where they want a 90-minute movie so they can play three shorts before it. Gotcha. So, and and you didn't really have any desire to cut it down. I mean, based on what we what you said previously, this was a movie where you said, "Listen, I'm making what I want to make." Yeah, it was it was my first cut was I think 2 hours and 4 minutes, 2 hours and 6 minutes, and it was very 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 difficult to cut those 4 6 minutes off. And I had to cut them off simply because of the length of time that it would fit on a DVD or a tape or whatever, and I wanted to make sure it was 2 hours. Uh, 120 minutes, uh, but it was it was, and it's funny that extent of the people that watch it are going to say, how could you not cut four minutes out of here? Because, so for example, the fir- the very first opening scene is an eight and a half minute scene of a nurse shaving a man. But you can't cut that out. You can't cut four minutes out of sure. That. You know, you, you I have a I have a one minute take in there where, uh, you know, something very static happens for one minute. But even if I cut half of that out that's only 30 seconds i cut out so i cutting 30 minutes out of this would be uh, in my opinion virtually impossible unless i cut it down to like a 20 minute or 30 minute short then then it would be a completely different movie understood and so you sent it out to festivals that didn't work out too well what what came after that uh well after that again uh we did the uh, fangoria convention we didn't have uh i didn't have it it wasn't completed yet. I was still in the process of editing it. Okay. But I did have a trailer made, so we had a TV set up and screened the trailer for that and the and hunting season just on a continuous loop. Um, at that Fangoria convention, Glass Eye Picks, which is Larry Fessenden's company, had a uh, had a panel. So I went to see their panel. I always liked his work. Uh, I always liked the people that he works with. Uh, so I watched this panel, and there was a guy on the panel named James Felix McKenney who has a movie called Automatons, which is a, a black-and-white movie, very similar paced to hunting, uh, to uh, Burning Inside, um, definitely very niche. And when I was back at my table sitting there talking to people as they walked by, selling a couple of hunting season DVDs, I see James Felix McKenney walk by. So I go up to him and I say, hey, just saw your panel at, uh, for Glass Eye Picks. I really like the look of... Uh, automatons while we're standing there the burning inside trailer comes up on my tv and he goes oh this looks great what is this and so i talked to him about it and he's like that looks fantastic you know send me a copy when you're done i was i thought it was great and so i went home and banged out a uh a final cut of it and sent it to him a couple of uh, weeks later he sent me back some notes on it which i uh, i think i may have applied some and you know how, you know how that goes Gotcha, yep. Um, sent him back another copy, and then he, he sent me an email and said, look, uh, we're looking at starting a distribution company to to start re-releasing some of the old movies that I have where the rights are reverting back to me, and we want Burning Inside to be the first one. We were really planning on it only being my movies, but we like Burning Inside so much that if you can't find distribution for it, let me know, and, and we'll put it out there. And at that point, I said, well, I like this guy. We had We had plenty of conversations between between the first time I met him and then, uh, you sure. know, I, I respected him and trusted him. And so I said, sure, we're signing up. I told, I mentioned it to Elmar, and he said, I like the guy, so let's do it. Um, plus, you know, with, with Jim comes a lot of connections. He's been, uh, he's been, you know, uh, knows everybody at Fangoria, knows all the people at all the magazines. The people respect him. He's a, he's a 
filmmaker with with connections. So I thought this this will be great. This is this is this will get us some coverage, some interest, and we can build from there. And and so, so what happened? We, that's how we ended up with Channel Midnight. Well, they we took it. Um, went through the process of putting it out on DVD. He's the same way I am. He's he's kind of old school. He wa- he likes DVDs. He wants somebody to go and buy a physical DVD. He likes to buy physical DVDs. You know, sitting at, at his laptop and watching a movie is not his idea of a good time. Right. And I agree. And so uh, he took that DVD. Built their they built their company. They built their Channel Midnight website put it up there, started sending out press releases and screener copies. We got an awesome uh, first review in fearzone.com. It was actually the last review of the fearzone.com website, which is by uh, Greg Lamberson, who did Mm -hmm. Slime City Massacre. And uh, so we were off and running, great reviews. And then it was just, after that, it was just great review after great review after great review. People that watched the movie loved it. And we... um, we screened at the Connecticut Film Festival, and that was when we were going to, okay, we are going to say, okay, we'll get some publicity for Connecticut Film Festival, and at the same time, right after the festival, we'll release the movie. That'll be our release date. So we did that. So, like, the weekend after, the, or the Tuesday after the festival, we did our release date. We had about we had about 70 people show up at the Connecticut Film Festival, which is a great turnout considering the um, accommodations, which I, don't, I won't get into here, but you can read about it on my blog. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, uh, so it was great, you know, everybody, everybody that sat in the theater. And, and this is a movie where I sat there nervous the whole time that half the audience <laughs> was going to walk out going, this is a bunch of ridiculous crap. Um, but it, it ends, and there's a standing ovation, and everybody loves it and talks to me afterwards, and they all leave, and everything's great. Um, so we released the DVD uh, like a, a week later. And uh, to, uh, Channel Midnight took out ads in Room Morgue. They took out ads in Shock Cinema, I think. Um, press releases, we were listed in the listings for Fangoria. I'm sure we were listed in the listings for Rue Morgue. We got some coverage, actually, in some German uh, German magazine called Deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a lot of coverage. We have, uh, from the time that the in and sales didn't take off, they didn't spike, you know, there was, it, it was, it's available, it's available everywhere online. Well, maybe not everywhere. It's available on Amazon, you can buy DVD, Amazon, you can buy a download. Um, Channel Midnight, you can buy a DVD. Channel Midnight, you can do a download to own, a download to burn, download for rental. It's uh, we got it up on YouTube rental for 3.99, so you can screen the whole movie on YouTube for 3.99. We actually have a, a an i an iPod app for it. There was a company that started making if your movie, which we got rejected for iTunes probably because it's black and white, the same reason that we got rejected for VOD, which actually I went through the distributor for Hunting Season the VOD distributor finding season to see if they were interested in burning inside, and they said no because it's black and white. Interesting. Um, so we you know, rejected the iTunes, so this company, just starting out, said we're making um, apps for feature films so that if your movie's not in the iTunes store, you can be in the iTunes app store, and so then people could still watch a movie on their, I, on their iPhone or iPod. That's cool. And so I said, great. So they gave it to us. Uh, I think that we, I think that they gave it to us for free or a reduced rate, maybe thirty dollars or something like that, when it's normally like five hundred dollars for the yep. transfer. Yep. Um, so so we got some coverage for that. You know, we were getting we were with with 
Jim starting his channel Midnight Distribution, he was getting a lot of coverage because Fangoria, Rumorg, they all wanted to talk to him about it. it so know, it sounds like everything was awesome. You got all the coverage. You were, I mean, it sounds like your footprint, your footprint spanned. It sounds like across Europe, across the U.S. Yeah. And all we these getting, publications, you were everywhere. And then what was the end result? How's the how's the money? How's the uh, the end result, we got our our sales report uh, earlier this year. So it, was, it went on sale in May of 2010. Uh, we got our sales report in January, and we sold a total of 27 units. Um, of those 27 units, because you, you can see when somebody buys something online, you can see who bought it. I know personally 13 of the people that purchased it, and 14 of those people um, I didn't know. So essentially, and, and I... I totally appreciate the people that I know buying it. It really, it, it makes me, it gives me a lot of, a, a lot of joy that they have faith in what I do and that they, that they want to support me. Um, so I don't want to diminish the importance of, of people that, that I know purchasing or that any filmmaker sure. knows buying their stuff. But what I really want to do is I want to sell it to a thousand people that I don't know. And yep. so, so sell it. So, it, so when I look at the report, I look at it as though there's only 14 people that, that have ever purchased Burning Inside. Well, it's like it's like uh, the the you know opening a coffee shop and only your friends and family come once, right? Well, I used to own a coffee shop, <laughs> <laughs> and and the first day that we opened, we had a stack a foot and a half high of muffins. We had fifty five gallons of milk in the fridge to make cappuccinos, and we had two people come in. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is the reality of any business. Is is my point here? Yeah, absolutely. You, sometimes you try to prove a concept and it, and it doesn't work the way you want it to work. Um, so here's the question for you, and, and we're um, we're running a little bit low on time. So I, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap this up. But I, I have some some one last question, and then a, maybe a couple other comments. But how do you feel? I mean, you've you had a movie that had some moderate success. Your second movie, which was, you know, you sank your heart and soul into it. It didn't have the same level of success, at least on a financial perspective. How do you feel? Are you going to continue to make movies? Are you going to go out and, and start up another business, so to speak? Well, it's very dismaying. It's, yep. and, and it's not even the fact that it didn't make money because, you know, granted, I, I would love to get Elmar Berger his money back and then some. I'd like to get some because I spent a year making this film. You know, that's a lot of hours to spend making a film. Yeah, it's a sweat equity. Um, the, the, the biggest issue that I have with it is that it's such a struggle to spend a year writing a movie, to get somebody to invest in it, to get people, a dozen or more people, to work on it who believe in it, have faith in it, and work on it virtually for free, to find somebody to distribute it, to spend another $3,000 on advertising and burning DVDs and setting up all this stuff to distribute it, to only have 14 people in the world actually see it. That's the problem that I have. If, if, if I, I wouldn't have, you know, money aside, I wouldn't have a problem... If we, if a hundred thousand people watch this movie for free, I, that would be great to me. That would that would validate it. That I would say, I wouldn't mind if ten thousand people saw it. You know, right. I just want people to see it. And you know, at some point around, you know, karma will come back around, and people will get their money back. And 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 Elmar has always said that he invested in it because he wants to see good movies get made, not necessarily because he wants to get rich. You know, the same thing. He took hunting season with no anticipation of getting any money back and tried to distribute it in Germany for us. And just to get it on, on the shelves. He says, I just want to see good movies out there. And so, you know, the, the, the money thing is, it's, 
it's there and it hangs over your head, but it's, that's not even what it's about. It's about getting people to see it, and that's the most disappointing aspect of it. Well, um, yeah, so and I don't, I don't look necessarily at the money thing as a bad word. I mean, that's that's any business, but the goal here, I think, as filmmakers, to, is to, you know, we want to make movies for a living. We don't want to have to rely on other sources for income, and right. and I think that that's the part that, at least for me, uh, sometimes if I do a project like our second feature, like your second feature, kind of died in quiet obscurity. And that is disheartening, and it is hard to push forward. But at the same time, um, you know, I guess you wake up one day and you, and you say, listen, am I going to keep doing this or not? <laughs> well, it, it, there's, also, there's always lessons to learn. With hunting season, I learned to cut out audio for my next movie, you know, to make sure that audio was not going to be a problem that holds us back. So with this one, the, the lessons to learn really are with distribution. Um, and, it's, and, and, it, and, it, and it didn't sell 14 copies because nobody likes the movie, because nobody saw the movie. You sure. know, there wasn't bad word of mouth. There's no word of mouth because 14 people aren't telling anybody. You know, the, the, the problem is, is find, there's, there's three. I, I, I believe that, that distribution, successful distribution, is a three-legged stool. There's awareness, there's availability, and there's interest. Well, it has to actually be availability, awareness, and interest. It, we're available in a lot of places. Maybe not enough, but also you have to be available where the awareness and where the interest is. So... If we're on a shelf in Walmart and somebody walks by, they can pick up the DVD and buy it. If somebody's trolling through Amazon and they come across Burning Inside, they're not going to order it and wait a week for it to come unless sure. they saw in a, a review. So they read a view, So there's too many steps in order in, to, to buy it. They read a review, then they have to go to Amazon, then they have to pay for it, then they have to wait for it in the mail. Or they go to, you know, anywhere else. There, there's too many steps in between. It, it, it's in, people need instantaneous response now. So with, with VOD, VOD could be a great market. And actually, after hunting season bombed on VOD, I asked the guy, I said, what could we do? What, what do you have to do to make it successful? And his response was, movies with A or B in the title are the most successful on VOD. Why? Because people push the VOD button, it's the first thing they see, and they hit buy. Interesting. So Moving to the next page is too many steps. It's almost like a phone book, the A's come before exactly. the B's, right? So I'm, yeah. so I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll rename my company Aardvark Filmmaking, and it'll, all my movies will be Aardvark Filmmaking Presents. So sure, I mean, that's a great tip. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so when I look at Burning Inside and I say, okay, I can watch Burning Inside, I can stream Burning Inside instantly on my TV. But what do I need to do that? I have a Blu-ray player that I can stream Amazon through, okay? Yep. So that's great. That's step one. So first step is that the, person, the viewer has to have a, a Blu-ray player or a Roku or something like that that they can stream Amazon through. The second step is I have to find the movie to stream it, which means that I need to have read a review of Burning Inside or seen an ad of Burning Inside, specifically gone to Amazon.com, looked at it there, purchased it for streaming, go over to my TV, turn on the TV, Blu-ray player, go to Amazon app, and watch it there. How many steps is that? Compared to turning on my cable box, hitting uh, VOD, and then hitting buy. You know, I, it, it has to be convenient. And people, there, there's no search. There's no... There's yeah, no you're, you're hitting on something that, that strikes me as, as one of these things. There are a heck of a lot of fads right now i think in the independent filmmaker community i get emails because you know the website and different things i get emails all the time from publicists telling me about this great new way that filmmakers can get their 
movies into some sort of video on demand system. I, I literally, in this week alone, I've, I've gotten like three of these types of emails of different people that are now making content available. But the unfortunate part is most of those marketplaces are not going to be visited by my intended target audience. Right. You know, you have Amazon. I like it because my mom is comfortable shopping there. Now, granted, she's not probably going to watch my movies or your movies, but... Um, right, but she also has to find it. Also, that's yep. where, Okay, so Amazon recommendation is great, right? Especially if... But now if they could get Amazon recommendation to actually go to my Blu-ray player so that when I turn it on and Amazon recommends on my Blu-ray player, that's even better. Well, yeah, and but, this is where, like you're saying about the cable video on demand, I mean, how convenient is that? That's what it, it's all about, convenience. If you look at, there, if, if somebody could go to, my, go to a review of Burning Inside and at that review have the screen right there to click on for 99 cents and watch it, then you're going to get sales if people are actually reading those reviews. And but most sure. of those reviews get read by, you know, they get four or 500 clicks and then it's, it's on to the next page. So, so, so look at something like, like e-books, which are hugely successful right now, not compared to the overall publishing industry, but they're hugely successful because you buy your Kindle, you go to the store right in the Kindle, you download the book in the Kindle, and you read it on the Kindle. Well, yeah, and it's one click away. They store all of your purchasing information. It's already in the database. Same with the iPhone App Store. Exactly. It's all one click, and there's nothing right now. You know, the, the iTunes Store, sure, there's, there's probably a million people out there that buy every movie that releases on Tuesday in the iTunes Store because 10 movies come out, and they go $99.99 or $2.99 or whatever it is. Yep. And, you know, it would be great to get Burning Inside up there, like the documentary Helvetica. They are successful because they got in the top 10 documentaries on iTunes, and that just fed itself. So you get into that top 10, and then you're golden. Yeah. It, you know, but findability, discoverability right now, it's not it, – it, that, that, that is the absolute building awareness and interest. You can build interest, but the findability and discoverability and ease of use is where the problem with indie film distribution lies right now. So with that being said, I'm moving, I am moving forward. We're working on this fall of the House of Usher short film, which actually I, I just am wrapping up a business plan that I wrote based on all of the advice that I've read from your site. Um, so we're going to go out, base that all on, we have a fan base. We have a fan base that is comfortable downloading, streaming, and doing things of that nature. It's a short film, and we're hoping to uh, get uh, some uh, financing based off of this business plan that shows the same way that when we made a business plan for a coffee shop, that there are this many people searching for Edgar Allan Poe, there are this many people searching for this, there is desire for this. If we sell 10,000 of these at 299 per download, we'll make our money back, you know, and, and that's, that's what it is. is, is that, and that's what I think a lot of independent filmmakers need to make a business plan because they go, I can make it, this movie, this drama about a guy who loves a girl and they sit in a coffee shop and they talk for two hours is going to be an amazing movie and everybody's going to love it but if they break it down and they say okay so we, we want a million dollar movie but we're, you, in order to make that million dollars back you have to sell so many tickets and that's where, that's where the reality is. I mean even with Fall Down of Usher I know it has a fan base but I'm working on this, this business plan and every time I sit there and I look at the numbers I go oh my god <laughs> yeah, you know? the numbers kind of hit you pretty pretty hard. I, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the other curse of the calculator, right? Yeah. When you start uh, figuring out how many how many downloads does it take to recoup that investment, 
even for a hundred thousand dollar movie, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like a gazillion people have to actually go to your website in the hopes that one percent actually make a purchase. Right. I mean, and who's and, and like okay, one of the first questions that you asked me through email was how many hits do I get on my website? I get about four hundred hits a month, and I don't know if those are bot hits or if those are real hits or if those are people that you know went there specifically. But I get four hundred hits a month. Right. So. You know, I'll put up a link directly from there. I, I, actually, I did. I put up a link to my Amazon directly from there. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a good play. Maybe you can start tracking that now in the months to come to see how many people are exiting your site through that link. Yeah. And then uh, you, you know, it's actually I think the most sales that I've probably gotten on the Amazon download is when I commented on Ted Hope's blog and said that it was there and nobody ever bought it, and it moved from number sixty on independent horror films to up to the top twenty-five. Oh, that's great. So that was probably like two sales. Well, and, and you're bringing up another point, and I, I know we're going way over time. You know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to break this into two parts because okay. I think it's good information that you're sharing. Uh, the other thing here is have you tried any sort of cross-promotion? Have you reached out to other filmmakers who have already done the hard work of sourcing an audience to say, listen, can you promote this movie? I'll give you X number of dollars on the back end for every sale, like, in a, like, a, like an Internet marketing affiliate relationship. Well, we do. We actually do have an affiliate. That was one of the things. You know, working with 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 Channel Midnight, they're our distributor. But for yep. the most part, I have we have enough conversation and discussion back and forth that that they're not some you know Lionsgate conglomerate that bought my movie and they're going to do whatever the hell they want with it. So they're you know, working I, with you to work with them to to make this thing uh, overall success right. for so everybody. Right. So I read a, I read a blog about uh, affiliates. And I send it to them, and they say, great idea. And they go, and they set up the affiliate program. And they do that. We have an affiliate program. We have, you know, we have some of that stuff. But, you know, it's, it's hard I, to I know say. it's tough because, you know, more and more like any other business, now us as filmmaker entrepreneurs have to take control of some of this marketing. So here you are on a Saturday probably, you know, doing Internet searches. Meanwhile, you're, you know, for a movie that you've already made a couple years ago, Meanwhile, you you need to focus on your next project. Right, and, and and you mentioned you mentioned working with a filmmaker with a with a fan base and getting that word out. I mean, James Felix McKenney is that filmmaker. He has a movie out right now, or it was it, it's kind of on the uh, film festival circuit called Satan Hates You. So it had maybe a dozen screenings over the past three or four months, and every time that they mentioned Satan Hates You, they mentioned Channel Midnight, they mentioned Burning Inside, and all the ads or all the um, and all of the articles and all those things. So, I mean, it's, I don't think, you know, I, I don't even know how many people have seen the, the name Burning Inside. I don't know. It, it, I, I think that it really, it really all boils down to um, ease of use and, 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 yeah. and, and findability, being able to find it in the place that you want to see it. You know, if it's in a movie theater, your people go to the movie theater, what are we going to see? Oh, we're going to see this movie. It's there. Right, it's and they already shelf. have the intention. They know what right. they're doing. If it's on the store shelf, people can, you know, you can impulse buy from the store shelf because it's a physical thing in front of you. But if it's just on Amazon and if it's just at BestBuy.com or Target.com or whatever, people aren't, unless they, unless you, you, you basically, looking at our sales, we, we did a Fangoria email blast uh, as part of her advertising. Sure. We got two sales from it, and then yep. I think they were both uh, downloads or something, and they were both uh, coupon sales. But I mean, that email probably goes out to a hundred thousand people, and you get two sales from that. 
welcome know. welcome to the realities. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, that – and I see a lot of independent filmmakers writing blogs or commenting on blogs or commenting on articles, and I think that the, the reality check is that they should really sit down, write a business plan out before they make their movie and say – why am I asking somebody to spend a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars on this movie when there's probably fifty people in the world that I know right now that would want to see it? And yep. I think that that's where the reality check is. Yeah, and uh, at that point in time, you really have to ask yourself if this project, you know, are you willing to make this project with the idea that nobody's going to watch it? Right. Potentially. And, and that's and that's what it is: is that nobody's going to watch it, not that nobody's going to buy it, because that's where that's where it really stinks. <laughs> not that nobody bought it, it's that nobody watched it. But the thing is, that the people that watch it, the, the reviews that we've had, the people that have seen it at the screenings that we've had, they love it. So that's where the BitTorrent thing came to mind with me, was that if I could put it up on BitTorrent and ten or 20,000 people download it and say half of them actually watch it, they're going to like it. And the DVD has an hour-long documentary on the making of it that's, that's getting as good reviews as the movie. I mean, people have said that it's the best making of documentary that they've seen. And it was just, you know, one of our friends with a video camera there the whole time, and then he edited, and he's a very talented, awesome, uh, put together this awesome making of. And, you know, so the hope would be that 20,000 people downloaded BitTorrent, 5,000 like it enough to go and look for the DVD, and, uh, you know, 1,000 of them actually buy it, and then we're fine. But it's just getting people to actually see it. Well, and, and that scenario that you're talking about, I, I know that that's probably risky, and, and that's a conversation between you and your distributor. Um, well, the question at this point is, what are we risking? We sold 14 copies in six months. Well, can you do, <laughs> can you do me a favor, and I'm sure you will, keep in touch. If you do end up testing that scenario, I'd love to, uh, to have kind of a recap and get your numbers on that for our listeners. Absolutely. And the readers of filmmaking I stuff. I think before we go that way, I talked to a guy from SoCap.com, and I think we're going to go that way, try okay. that out for a few months, and then we'll see. We'll go from there. Um, well, listen, SoCap is a they kind of sell licensing rights. So if you wanted to have a screening in Chicago, you pay me a hundred bucks, and you could screen in Chicago. Oh, cool. It's really, it's a really, really neat. Uh, he'd actually probably be a really good one to have for one of your future podcasts if you uh, believe in his program. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a. A Kickstarter, but instead of donating or getting rewards, you're actually buying licensing rights. And you could do it uh, after a film like Burning Inside is already created or potentially for something like The Fall of the House of Usher, which is in development right now. And so we put that, we could put that up there, and people all around the world and could, could buy the licensing rights for it basically as a pre-sale. Uh, they download it. They have some proprietary technology that makes it a very small file to download. And then you can screen it digitally. Interesting. Yeah, it's really neat. So you license out the rights to the other people. They promote it. They get a cut. And then you eventually get a cut as well? Well, what you would do is you license it for a base fee. So, like, say, uh, Chicago. Yep. Uh, the rights to screen this movie in Chicago is $100 base. So they, get $100, so they pay you $100. They get the license fees. Then you get a cut of all of the ticket sales. So if they, have, if they sell 1,000 tickets, you get a percentage of the ticket sales also. Gotcha. And SoCap gets their uh, money with, uh, like the same way the Kickstarter does, like 5% off the top and 5% off the ticket sales or something like that. But it's a really interesting thing because basically what it is is it's, it, the reliance is on the, the um, exhibitor to advertise it. Yeah, the I, audience, they, they source the audience. So right. you don't really have anything to lose. 
Right. I can't drive across the country on a tour screening my movie because I don't know anybody in uh, Greenville, Ohio. You know, I would show up with Burning Inside there having rented four walls of theater. Yeah. And four people would show, if that. You know, right. There'd be the two people that are passed out out front. And, and maybe your second or third cousins. Right. But maybe somebody in Greenville, Ohio, has a screening, a horror screening series that they have every month in the Unitarian Church. And sure. they come across <laughs> Burning Inside and think, great idea. We'll pay 50 bucks and we'll have, you know, 60 people show up and they buy tickets for $10 each. And so we just made... $600 less the 50 and then we split that. You know, that's where that's where it is. And we had a, actually had a really good uh, successful screening up in Boston. Um uh website put on up there they have a screening series every year. So we're going to I'm going to go with that and see how that does and and I mean maybe even that would 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 benefit from a bit torn also, but we'll see. Well, that's that's the thing I I guess you said it earlier where you know at this point in time you have nothing to lose. Right. And our uh, Elmar is uh, who has distrib- distribution ties in Germany. He used to be a distributor back when there was something called VHS. Gotcha. Um, he uh, is actually shopping it around now in in Germany because it is actually I think it's something that would do very very well in Europe. Um, it's just a matter of seeing what we have to do as far as uh, subtitling and and shopping around there to see if we can get something in Germany. But Germany's or Europe is even worse off than the U.S. Their their video stores stopped buying anything that didn't have a star. Uh, Years before ours, yeah. Because with hunting season, he said he said everything was it was all re- it was all rejected. It, 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 the first the first question was always who's starring in it. Without a star, they don't you, buy you've it. shot yourself in the foot. You're yeah. already out of the game. Yeah. So, but hopefully we'll have some success with uh, Usher. And, and again, every every project builds on the last one. That's why you can't you can't stop. You can, I couldn't make hunting season and say okay, well you know this will never be success because I make burning inside we get. We get publicity for Burning Inside, and that helps out hunting season. I'm sure that some people have bought hunting season because they have seen something from Burning Inside. And then when we do the Fall of the House of Usher, people will will come across the Fall of the House of Usher, and they'll see what we've done previously. And that's that's the way that it goes. You just have to keep building. Yeah, I think it's important to note that you are taking time to learn from each experience. You know, you're not giving up. And you're applying those lessons to your next project. And I, yep. I think that's the game for anything you do in life. You have to. You know, every uh, everything that I applied to filmmaking was lessons that I learned with the coffee shop. You know, I learned how to make a business plan at a coffee shop. I learned how to deal with customers. And, and I mean, which is what you do. You, 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 a film is a gigantic project where you have to run everything, and that's exactly what the coffee shop was. It was a just gigantic project that had to be run. What what kind of as we're wrapping up here? What's your, what's a bit of advice that you could give to you know? There's a lot of filmmakers listening to this that uh, there's two two filmmakers I found go to filmmaking stuff. They are filmmakers that are just starting out and they've never made a feature film. Um, and then you got some industry veterans that that have the kind of experience you have, as well as there's some folks that have made and worked on as a freelancer some of the big budget stuff. You are now experiencing the realities of some of this distribution and how it has a ripple effect on financing and all the other areas. Um, I know that's that's a lot, but w- what's some advice to all these folks? Um, I, I would I would say I'd have two things. The first is know why you're making the movie. Like with Hunting Season, I made that in order to entice a producer to uh, invest in my next movie. That was I knew why I was making that. So, so I wasn't concerned with a mass audience not being into the 45 minutes of character development in the beginning. 
I knew that a, a producer, producer that would want to work with me that I would want to work with is going to be interested in character development because that's what my movies are going to be about. So, so the first bit of advice is know, if you're a, a filmmaker starting out, know why you're making a movie. You know, if you're making a movie to get rich, then, you, you, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but if you're making a movie to get rich, then find something else to do because it's not going to happen. And I know everybody saw Sundance and 30-something movies sold at Sundance, and everybody's got dollar signs in their eyes now thinking it's going to be great, but, you know, those movies weren't selling for the $10 million, $20 million deals that Paris, Te- uh, whatever, Happy Texas went for, or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. You know, so... If you if you send your five million dollar movie to Sundance and it gets a million and a half offer, you know, that's that's the reality. So so the number one thing is know why you're making it, and and then you can gauge your success on that. If you're making it because you want people to come up to you after a screening and talk about, you know, what it means to to. For example, in Burning Inside, uh, the big theme of it is that there's no past and there's no future. If you want to talk, have a conversation with people about philosophy like that after making the movie, then that's a great reason to make a movie. Because you can be successful at that. You can, you, you know, you can gauge that success. If everybody walks out of your movie and, and leaves, then you could go back and you rethink about what you did that didn't work to that end. You know, everything. It's the same way that that your theme of the movie should be in every single scene when you're writing it. Right. And you say, this, this scene has that theme, this scene that... The reason that you're making the movie, everything about it should be for the, what that movie is about. So it's like a baseline expectation. You don't... Uh, your rules for success or how you define success on your project, you know, you make it something that's achievable. Right, right. Uh, you know, something... And, and, and then the second piece of advice is make a business plan. Make a real business plan and really decide whether or not people want to see your movie or not. And 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 a lot of people say, well, if you all focus on the business, then you lose all the art. And I want to make an uh, art piece or whatever. That's fine. It, that that's the, making a business plan allows you to create the art. Because if I sat there and I looked at Burning Inside and I said, wow, this is a really niche movie. There's maybe a thousand people in the U.S. that want to watch it, but I want to make it for a million dollars. That's just completely absurd that that doesn't make sense right but if i look at it and i say okay well i did my business plan i saw what the demand is for a movie like this i saw what um what kind of reach i can have to people and this and that and my business plan is telling me that i can make this movie for ten thousand dollars then i'm going to look at it and go okay well i can make the movie for ten thousand dollars the business plan allows you to make the movie so, yeah, and, and just for clarification, business plans have changed quite a bit for independent filmmakers. I know when I was starting out, whenever we got to that part about how we are going to recoup the investment for the investor, it was always like, well, we're going to get into festivals, we're going to build buzz, and if we're really lucky, we'll find a distributor who will then sell the movie for us. Right. And with, now, with that, with that with that old business plan, there was there were you were hoping it was a it was a hoping and a wishing business plan that right. that a dozen people across the United States would like your movie and put it in their festival, and then the people in that movie in that festival maybe a dozen people of those which are the distributors are going to like it and want to fight for it and buy it. With the, with a the business plan now, you own the pipeline. You it, it's the same thing as the coffee shop. We had the product, and we had the distribution, and the customers came to us, and we got it. So with the movie now, you own the pipeline. You own the, the production. It's like owning a factory and having the store in, in, in the same building. 
Well, yeah, in that degree, it's like any other business, thankfully. We distribute it, and we can bring it to the customers. There's no more reason to wish and hope that a half a dozen people in the United States like it enough to spend money on it. And that's the way that it used to be. I mean, that's the great thing about the business plan now is that you can see who – and, and, and that's the eye-openers, that everybody thought that it's, it's like this magic money. Oh, they, the, the distributor screwed me. I never got a dime from them. Well, chances are they never got a dime from any of their sales. They probably right. never had any sales. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Because these people make a, you make a crappy independent film. It gets picked up by a, via a, a straight-to-video distributor. The filmmaker never sees any money, and then they start bad-mouthing distributors saying that they got screwed because they never saw a dime. Chances are they never sold a, a copy. Because, you know, there's just a, they, they, they didn't get out there. The, the sales don't happen. It's, it's, not, it's not magic. And now that you own the pipeline, it, that's, like you say, you don't ask permission. Yeah, you can at least take a shot at it, you know? Yep. Yeah. I, and, you know, I, I, that's, that's, the, that's the main theme of my business plan is we own the pipeline. We own the production of it. We own the distribution of it. And we own the gathering of the customers. Well, Nathan, this is this has been a great conversation. I'm really happy that you took the time to share this with uh, the listeners and the readers of Filmmaking Stuff. And I want to wish you all the best in, in your current projects, your past projects that are still out there, um, and, of course, your future projects. Well, thanks for having me on. Keep in touch. And let me know how this, how this works out if you're going to try any of those other uh, newfangled strategies to get, to get your movie out there. I definitely will. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks.